it's fun to know that there are women at all different times during the week gathering at homes and on Zoom and listening in their bedrooms and even recording like Lauren did the study from her home. But it's also good to have a remnant and to see your faces as a small representative of that on Thursday morning. So I'm glad to be here with y'all. I think what I'm going to do is tell you a story about how Romans 8 has impacted my life and then maybe put it a little bit in context with the rest of the book of Romans. So that's what I'm going to do. During Lent of 2019, I got a call from my neighbor. His stepdaughter had passed away. Could I come over? Would I consider leading a service? We know these neighbors, sort of. Our dogs hate each other. They, we remind each other when to pull out the trash. We grumble and roll our eyes when he plays his country music too loud. But we're friendly. But we don't know each other that well. So it's time to be a pastor. I went ahead and put on my clothes that I was going to wear to lead the Lent service at Black Knoll that night, button up and blazer, wanting to feel official. It was awkward. I didn't know them that well, and they really didn't know what to do with me. They called me because, well, they really didn't have anyone else to call. And they were really afraid of what anyone else might say. So here I was in the kitchen with the thrice-married mother of the deceased and her husband with a drinking problem, with her sister and her sister's wife, her son with the long rap sheet that everybody in the neighborhood knows, her biracial orphaned granddaughters, and the great-grandmother, and me. So I tried to begin where Alan taught me to begin. <laughs> I got out my funeral service order and I said, so let's talk about some scriptures that you might want. Crickets, crickets, crickets. The 23rd Psalm, the Lord's Prayer, no traction. Let's talk about the deceased. Tell me about, we'll call her Kay. So they each went around and told me about Kay. And each one of them, as they remembered, you know, staying up late and doing makeup and running in on each other's rooms and her coming over at odd times to just cuddle on the couch, they also each warned me, do not say anything about Kay's drug problem. Whatever you do, do not speak ill of Kay. So I walked out of there with no idea what I would say. I went home to shower and change clothes because after an hour in their kitchen, I reeked of cigarette smoke and didn't think that was going to work at the Black Knoll Lent service of an hour later. And my heart was heavy. I was really sad, just stunned. The death of this mother of two younger than I. I was also really bewildered. Uh, I was bewildered by the gulf in our vocabulary, our theological vocabulary, our social expectations. What could I possibly say at this funeral? What word of truth and comfort would bridge the obvious gap 
Romans 8. This favorite chapter in a cherished book, as our study calls it, describes both the groaning of our present day that this family knew and was experiencing and the hope of glory. It describes an everlasting love, a love that is stronger even than the love of the most loyal family, a love that nothing in all creation, not angels or demons, addiction, or even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Without needing to know or pass judgment on Kay's faith, I had in the sweet center of a book a word of hope that was grounded in more than what was quoted at me, sweet Facebook sayings about another angel in heaven. Romans 8 gave a word of hope grounded in a real historical event in Jesus and an invitation to live now as God's children. The author of our study, Trillian Newbell, closes with the challenge to take this message of Romans 8 to the world, to share the good news, to let others behold the treasure hidden in jars of clay. <clears throat> and as I reflected on this, I realized that Romans 8 helped me in that moment in the kitchen to see the love of Christ in a place where all of my theological training and church customs and Christian imagination simply fell short. Romans 8 helped me give voice to the love of God where my social graces did not apply, but where the love of God certainly extended. What about you? How might Romans 8 help you Imagine and affirm the love of God where you otherwise simply might not be able to see it. You know, extended reflection on the identity, assurance, and everlasting love of God for us, well, it could go one of two ways. It could end as a sort of touchy-feely, no, God loves you, no, God loves you, no, God loves you more. It could be a sort of self-help, warm, fuzzy study, but that's not how Romans 8 works in the book of Romans, and that's not how it will work for us as a community. I want to briefly put this chapter back in the book of Romans and suggest two ways, based on the chapters that follow, that this extended meditation on God's everlasting love doesn't turn Paul and the church inward, but it raises their eyes outward and helps them imagine and affirm the love of God in places where they otherwise might not. First, the first place is for Israel, for spiritual insiders who reject Jesus. The second is for weak brothers and sisters, fellow believers who reject us and our ways, what we want them to do. So immediately after Romans 8, Paul launches into a two chapters long lament for Israel. He starts with, oh, I wish that I were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my people, he writes. From there, he offers 
it's kind of a tortured examination and application of Israel's history. Reading it back and forth, you know, contorts your mind. I think in one of our earlier interviews, Dr. Amy Wisnan said she took a whole seminary class just on these two chapters and came out as confused as she was when she went in. So Paul goes through Israel's history from the patriarchs to the exodus to the prophets to Paul's own ministry to the Gentiles full of plenty of great words about anguish and God's faithfulness and his concern and remnants and rejections. He cautions the Gentiles not to be superior. And then after all of that, ends with this outburst of praise. Oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Okay? I'm not pretending to explain this really complex section, but I want to take it as a whole, and I want us to notice what, how this extended reflection on God's love in Romans 8, what it sets Paul up to do. It doesn't make Paul, he doesn't go from Romans 8 and then say, Ugh, how can people just not get it? Extended reflection on God's love doesn't make Paul impatient or exasperated with those who still live according to the flesh. Quite the contrary, it gives him the capacity to have this extended long lament, this grief. Does that make sense? So instead of saying, oh, God's love is so great, and how do you not get it, and oh, I wash my hands of you. It's God's love is so great, more than I can understand, and so I will stay in the grief and lament and confusion for those that do not yet recognize it. So it's not impatience with this spiritual insiders who reject Jesus but it's lament, grief, and even hope. Can the reminder of this great and inexhaustible love sustain both your grief and your hope for someone who is dear to you, who does not right now receive Jesus? A child, a friend, a family member? Instead of making you impatient, how can you not get it? Can you perhaps stay in this crazy mode of Paul where you remember, here's how I raised you and here's what God says, but here's what we expect. But maybe you need to live in your own Romans 9 through 11 for someone who is dear to you, a spiritual insider who does, who does not right now receive the Lord. Extended meditation on God's love doesn't turn us in or constrain our capacity to imagine or hope, but it gives us patience. It actually sustains lament and hope. Second, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul takes up the issue of the strong and the weak in the church. Within this modest-sized community, and we should imagine that the Roman church was probably a, you know, several different house churches, but none of those house churches more than 30 people. So when you're getting together with a group, say, this size, or maybe 30, you know, little differences in how you want to do things, like what kind of food you think you want to eat, 
or what day you should get together and celebrate, well, that gets hard, doesn't it? We know that from trying to plan church events. So there are consequential differences in this little community, but Paul takes them to task. Those of you who think you are strong, who can celebrate on any day, who can eat whatever you want, don't pass judgment on them for being weak. They're the Lord's servant. They're accountable to the Lord. And not only that, but he calls on them to even forego their own preferences, to maybe not eat what they want to eat for the sake of that brother or sister in Christ. So notice again how Romans 8 functions in this whole letter. It could be that, you know, extended meditation on I'm chosen, I'm assured, nothing can separate me from God's love can lead you to an attitude of I'm God's little princess and I can do no wrong. Or God is for me, so I don't know if he's for you, but I know he's for me. But that's not how it works. Quite the opposite. Rather, the knowledge that God is for you enables you to live for others, even at your own expense. Can the reminder in Romans 8 that God is for you, the reminder of this great love, sustain you to be for someone, maybe a fellow brother or sister in Christ who opposes what you want in big ways or small? Friends, God is for us. That is the message of Romans 8. And we're remembering at Advent that God is also God with us through Jesus. I'm looking forward to hearing the reflections on this at the women's event next Thursday night. Becky will probably say more about that. But I want to call on us, as the author of our study does, and as Paul himself does, uh, to, t to let this knowledge transform us. For it to sustain lament and hope for those who don't receive the Lord. And for it to sustain patience, forbearance with one another. God is for us. And he has freed us by his spirit to live for one another. So I know you, and I know that you have, and per perhaps recently, perhaps today, perhaps sometime in the future, you will find yourself in a smoke-filled kitchen, or with a grieving parent, or with an unfamiliar neighbor, or with a discouraged Christian friend, and you will be asked, you will have the task of imagining God's love where either nobody else can, or nobody else even knows it's a thing to be imagined. What will you do? What will you say when you feel like the gap is too big, that your words escape you? Well, here's what worked for me. Remember Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything, anything, anything else in all creation? What does that leave out? It doesn't, it, nothing. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God.